That was lovely. I will try my best to be the good kind of boring this morning. <laughs> and, um, speaking of transgressions, um, my message to you this morning is about sin. So how's that make you, who said that? <laughs> That's my question, how's that make you feel? <laughs> I know for me, if I were you, I would feel a little bit heavy, apprehensive, might wish I had slept in this morning, right? Because sin is one of these terms. It's this construct, sin, sinful sinner, that has inhabited threat-based Christianity since forever. It's a part of a system whereby God has created rules, some of which kind of map onto functionality and fruitfulness, but at the core, they're just from God. They're just God-breathed rules. The infraction of which we call, using this religious term, sin. It's a very consequential occurrence to commit a sin. By committing a sin, we become sinful sinners. And... (laughs) There are outcomes to that, right? There are specific uh, punishments meted out for particular sins. But at the end of the day, we're all caught up in the big punishment for any sin, which is death, dying. Everybody who sins becomes a sinner who must die. And the only reason we don't have to in the end is that God has chosen the one sinless being in the cosmos to die on our behalf. So by some wonderful but kind of mysterious mechanism, we're let off the hook, right? For which we're supposed to be um, thankful. So it's a pretty heavy construct. And to me, it stands again at the center of what I would call threat-based Christianity. There's a way of doing Christianity in which threat looms and is a part of the fabric of the whole thing. This notion of sin, sinfulness, sinner, and its deep consequentiality is written into the fabric of how Christianity has been lived probably for many of us in this room and certainly for Christianity writ large across the centuries. But here's the thing, our church has been engaged in this radical experiment, and you can uh, describe it in multiple different ways. I would say that at the heart of it, it's been emerging from a practice of threat-based Christianity for the past 10 to 15 years, into something that I haven't come up with quite the right term for it, I'm kind of toying with carefree Christianity. (laughs) Right, it's a little bit edgy. Maybe means something more than what you think it means, but at the core, I think it captures the heart of what we're trying to do here. The thing is that practicing carefree Christianity means we've had to reevaluate all the components of what we had been doing. It's not just that we're a little bit nicer than we used to be, or that people feel welcome here who maybe didn't before. It's that the whole construct that undergirded threat-based Christianity has to be reevaluated and changed. And so what I want to share with you this morning is how that has affected our concept of sin. 
doing both deconstruction and reconstruction. So trying to do way too much in 25 minutes on a Sunday morning, but we're going to give it a go. Okay. And so that's my offering, and the motivation is both just to help you understand how we think about some of these things, but also because practicing carefree instead of threat-free Christianity puts us at odds with a lot of what Christianity is like out there. So you will get questions if people know you're going to this church about how we think of certain things, because we don't think of them as we ought. We don't believe what we ought to believe. But I think that what we are doing is deeply thoughtful and meaningful and powerful and credible and substantial. That we can stand up with confidence in how we are doing the practice of Christianity here. Okay? So I want to offer you one taste of that this morning. So there's a story. We're going to do deconstruction first. There's a story where Jesus is walking along with a couple of his friends through a town and they encounter a man begging by the side of the road who I think they all know has, is, is engaged in that activity because he's been blind since birth. And so Jesus' friends ask him, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they inhabit a threat-based form of religion with the construct of sin at the center. Right, This bad occurrence, so a construct of good, bad, punishment, reward, Right, this person has experienced a bad out- outcome because of sin. There's no doubt about that. The only question is where sin occurred in the system to produce this outcome. And so Jesus responds by essentially saying, oh my goodness, we inhabit such a different conception of how the world works. What's going on here has nothing to do with sin, sinfulness, sinner. In fact, this occurrence has come about to put on display the goodness of God. So Jesus heals the man, which is a happy occurrence for him, but everybody else in that town, village, in that setting is thrown into disarray. The family members, the friends, First of all, because Jesus committed a sin in performing the act of healing because he did it on the day of rest, the Sabbath. But then for the pastors, priests, theologians of his day, Jesus is just messing with the whole system. He is clearly perceived as a threat. And so what they want to do is affix a label to him that will enable them as the authority folks in the room to be able to do to Jesus whatever they want to do. So you can put up the first slide. So at the center of the story is this occurrence where they bring the man who was healed to them. And they say to the man, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, which means tell the truth on oath. We know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So what the pastors, priests, and theologians of Jesus' day were trying to do was get the man who Jesus healed to affix a label to Jesus. This label, sin, sinful, sinner. Because a label is a powerful thing, right? We give to those who have authority in whatever system we're involved the right to affix labels. And you do a lot of work. 
to affix a label, to examine whether a thing qualifies for a particular kind of label, because what happens when the label is affixed is you can stop thinking. You've made your determination. You've done the work of figuring out whether whatever it is, whatever object, idea, person, conforms to the label. Once you've done that, you can stop thinking, stop evaluating, and the label gives you rights. It tells you how to relate to that thing. So in this case, if they're able to, to affix the label sinner to Jesus, they can stop thinking, right? Well, sure, the man sees, but he's a sinner. And then they can do whatever they want. It's a method of obtaining control. They can diminish Jesus. They can expel him. They can kill him, right? So this whole act of affixing labels is a part of a system in which there's power. Power gets to affix labels. We can think of it in the opposite direction within Christianity, right? <laughs> An opposite kind of label would be biblical. I'm channeling David's use of, what, quotation marks. And, you know, sinner, sinner. <laughs> if I affix the label biblical to something, it tells you that I think it's God-ordained, that it has a certain kind of status. In the Christian world, it has a certain amount of authority, and so you have to relate to it with an attitude of reverence and submission. Right? I can stop thinking about what it actually is, what it actually does, the fruitfulness of the thing. If I affix that label, and once affixed, it's hard to pull off. So with sinner. <laughs> So, here's, so you can put up the next slide. So this is the moment of deconstruction, right? Sin and sinner are labels that religious power affixes to those things and people that it desires to control, to diminish, expel, or destroy. Now that's an interesting definition of sin and sinner, right? It's just a construct of power. And it's not just from this story. When you watch Jesus interact with those things and people who are labeled, labels flying all over the place, tax collectors and sinners, Jesus interacts with the practice of labeling, not just with the content. He doesn't just try to free people from the consequences of being labeled. He interacts with the whole construct. He says this is a bad thing to do, a wrong practice. It is inherently through and through corrupt. And it produces bad fruit, so you will find him toying with this particular form of labeling. He himself inhabits the labels. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He turns the meaning of the labels on their heads. So that being labeled sinner produces exactly the opposite outcome that those using the label would want it to produce. And so if someone comes to you <laughs> and says, yes, but isn't that sin? Aren't you becoming a sinner? Aren't they sinners there? I think it is totally legitimate to say, here's the thing. The way you're using sinner against them or against me is exactly the same. Is you're doing exactly the same thing as the pastors, priests, and theologians of Jesus' day as they tried to use that against him. And until you and I extract sin, sinfulness, sinner, from a construct of power where those labels are used to control, we cannot have a conversation about what they mean. 
We cannot know what they actually mean until we do this work of deconstruction, extraction, disentangling. And I'm telling you, that'll buy you a good amount of time. <laughs> right? Nobody's going to come back tomorrow because sin, sinfulness, sinner have inhabited constructs of threat-based religion as a means of exerting power since the whole thing began. Right? Certainly my entire lifetime. I've been at it 10 years or so after having inhabited most of my, for most of my adult life a threat-based practice of Christianity. And I am still finding ways that this thing affects how I think about what it means to sin, to be a sinner, to be sinful. All right. So we're halfway there. Right? That's the deconstruction part. I'm going to turn now to reconstruction. <laughs> but I want to say, I just want to acknowledge, if you're happy at this point, if you don't want to go forward with me into reconstruction, that is totally legitimate, right? I would not gainsay you that sentiment. You may say, it's just been too harmful. It's produced too much damage. The word, the concept, are irredeemable. I cannot imagine in my lifetime sin, sinfulness, sinner, other terms associated with those not producing, triggering, and a trauma-based reaction in me. So I just can't go there. <laughs> you will find here in this church that we really resist using traditional terms and labels because they have such a history. There's difficult to disentangle them from all the stuff, from all the ways that they have been misused by power to control us, right? So if that's where you're at, I bless you. But for me, <laughs> I think about this stuff a lot. I think people in the Bible do too. It's remarkable the amount of time that both Jesus and, for example, the writer Paul give to this particular topic, I think a part of what they're doing is this wrestling. What does it actually mean? Is there something helpful in it? Can I get there? So for me, the beginning of the possibility of helpfulness for thinking about what sin, sin, or sinfulness might mean, how that might actually help me navigate life in a fruitful way, I present to you a well-worn diagram for us. Woo, bounded set, centered set. So these two images show two representations of the most common way of conceiving what it means to belong to a group, to participate in a group. So on the left is bounded set. Now there are a couple of things about this image that are kind of disturbing. I'll get to those in a minute. But most groups that most of us participate in are bounded set groups. The primary metaphorical feature of a bounded set group is a wall that separates inside from outside. So inside in a bounded set group is typically the place you want to be. It's where goodness resides, all the benefits of membership, most Christian churches across the course of time and most that exist today would function as a bounded set group. Inside, inside is blessing and delight and ease and goodness. Inside is God. Inside is ultimately heaven. 
And outside is dark, scary, threatening, badness, erosion, decay, violence, harm, and ultimately death. So not surprisingly, in a Christian setting, inside is where you want to be, right? The trouble with this diagram on the left, and this one is commonly used in representations you can see in Christianity, and describing what bound set is like, is it seems to imply that there is a profound difference actually in the people who are in versus out. Either they've been chosen because of certain characteristics or they are transformed in some way that makes them a fundamentally different kind of person. And it's missing the most important component of the wall, which is a way in, right? Now, for those of you who will understand this, maybe this is a Calvinist representation of bounded set. There actually is no way in or out. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, but in a bounded set organization, in a bounded set practice of Christianity, we're very concerned with getting in and going out. And so a lot of attention and energy I was going to present to you as a representation of a bounded set portal, a passage through the wall, the sodium-potassium pump <laughs> from from your high school of physics and biology, but I didn't want to traumatize you further, you know. It's a great model, though, if you think about it, for getting good stuff in and bad stuff out. And the inside of the cell needs to be pristinely maintained. But, a, but another image that some of you will resonate with, you can show the next slide. <laughs> this is passing through TSA security at an airport, right? So the thing that turns out to be the case in many bounded set organizations, inside is pristine, lovely, heavenly, godly, all sorts of good things. It also turns out to be surprisingly fragile, susceptible to trouble, specifically susceptible to contamination. And here's where sin comes in in a bounded set organization. Sin needs to be kept out because if it gets in, it can infect everybody in there. It can mess up the awesomeness, the pristineness, the holiness, the sanctity of the inner sanctum. And so while we want to encourage those who are lost, wandering on the outside, to join us in the delightful inner space, we have to do it very carefully. And so a huge amount of energy in a bounded set Christian organization goes into building, developing, maintaining, uh, scrutinizing the portal for entry how you get in. I mean, some of you will have, will have had experiences with what this can be like, both with the effort designed to encourage people to pass through the portal to the inside, but also with the care and attention, the classes, the education, the scrutiny. I always think we should, we should have as a model, instead of the uh, TSA thing that checks for whatever metal, just a sin detector, right? as you walk through the door. No, we can't let that in. There's this notion that we have to leave sin outside or that whatever sin we're taking through us, there's this magical transformation that occurs when we pass through the portal. So we come to the inside different kinds of people, right? And there's a lot of attention inside too. <laughs> if you have sin in you or carry sin with you, inside, that's deeply troubling and disturbing because it can put your good standing inside at risk, right? 
I remember, I remember conversations that uh, my young adult friends and I would have, because this is where it attaches to labels too. What kinds of things are we doing that are sin, sinful? Because they're hugely consequential. Now, most of them, not surprisingly, given that we were in a conservative Christian setting and we were young adults, had to do with aspects of human sexuality, which I won't go into detail here with, but they were things that all of us were doing, but that we were desperate to hope were not sin. Right? Because there was this huge consequentiality to them. So, an abounded set organization, primary job, again, of leaders is to man the gate, to staff the gate, to scrutinize criteria for admission, to surveil what's going on on the inside. And the other thing about abounded set entity is that the primary goal or outcome is being in the right place. Not being outside, but instead being inside. Once you're in, the primary thing that happens for you as a participant is just the getting in. Once you're in, all the rest is gravy. There might be things you do, there might be benefits to membership, stuff you learn, interactions. But most of what you're doing is going from outside to in and then being in. Sin is something that puts your personal standing at risk, that might keep you out, that might put your personal standing at risk once you're in. Okay. So now we'll contrast that with, so if you could put up the diagram again, centered set. So in a centered set, what this is showing is that the primary unifying feature of members of a centered set organization is moving in a particular direction. So in a centered set entity, the focus is not on where you are, but where you're going, where you are choosing to go. And so those who belong together to a centered set group have chosen a common objective, a common object of desire towards which they all happen to be moving. And so the first thing you'll notice about a centered set entity is that the wall is gone. It's just vanished. It's disappeared. <laughs> For those of us who've inhabited bounded set organizations to come into one that is truly centered set, that really practices it, it is completely disorienting, right? It throws you off. There is no frame of reference because if you're trying to place people in space as co-members of this thing, they can be anywhere, up, down, right, left, near, far, backwards, forwards. The only thing that produces the group cohesion is moving towards a common goal. So for us, the common goal here would be God as imaged most eloquently through Jesus to us. And so literally, anybody who has as a goal moving closer to Jesus could be a member here. <laughs> but the thing is, the other thing that's disorienting is that it's completely self-selecting. You know whether that fits you. I don't. And because there is no wall, there's no gate, so I'm essentially, if I'm a bounded set gatekeeper, out of a job. There's just not that much more for me to do. There is no scrutiny. There is no assessment. There is no walking through some detector of something. There is no threat to belonging because you are choosing whether you belong or not. I don't. I don't. I don't have any say in that. The other thing, in the terms of our conversation today, that's interesting to me as I think about sin, sinful, sinner. 
right? Since none of that puts at risk whether you belong or not, it's just whether we're all kind of going in the same direction together, how we interact socially changes a lot from scrutiny and threat and power and authority to something much more akin to helpfulness or guidance or advice. If you in your pursuit have discovered something that works well for you, that helps you get closer to the goal you're trying to attain, or on the other hand, if you've done something that's led you in you know, a direction that you regret, and you are able to share that, to put words to that, to, to post it, <laughs> to write it, to communicate it in some way to others engaged in the same pursuit, that is meaningful social activity in a centered set organization. So I want to read just a couple of scriptures that to me map onto this. These are from Jesus. He says, whoever breaks one of the least of the commandments and teaches people to do likewise shall be called least in the kingdom of the heavens. But whoever performs and teaches it, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of the heavens. You can show the next one. Here Jesus talks about children. Whoever causes one of these little ones who have faith in me to choose something less, it is better for that one to have a millstone of the kind turned by an ass hung about their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. And the last one, children were brought to Jesus that he might lay hands upon them and pray, but the disciples rebuked them. But Jesus said, leave the little children be and do not prevent them from coming to me, for such is the kingdom of the heavens. So what I hear Jesus saying is it is uh, an object of admiration from God, not just when you learn to do a good thing that's helpful to you, but then when you are able to translate that into something that's helpful to others, engaged in the same journey. On the flip side, if you do something that messes with your progress, with where you want to go, and then you cause others to be messed up in the same way, God does not look on that very favorably. Right? That stirs God up against what you've done. Now, it's interesting in the first set of verses that I showed that it's still all occurring in the kingdom of heaven. Not sure what that means. But this seems to be, to me at least, a way of beginning to understand something that could be called sin or sinful. I love the way Jesus talks about children. <laughs> Do not hinder them from coming to me. Do not get in the way of their progress. Do not obstruct it. Do not produce that kind of harm. Right? Do not deceive. Do not deflect. Do not say, no, it's over here, not there. And the whole millstone thing. I hear Jesus saying, you know, so children are particularly impressionable. If you and I do something that causes harm to a young one who is impressionable, it can produce lasting trauma. And this is what I find so often in how we interact with the things that I think God meant to help us in our journey. You know, God knows that the destination we're trying to go after, coming close to God, into proximity with God, nearing Jesus to receive the help that Jesus offers. God knows we need help, and so God has offered all sorts of things to produce help. A community of fellow travelers, a text containing stories by people who've done well or poorly on the journey, and why? Spiritual practices, 
but because those things have been employed in a threat-based practice of Christianity for so long, we are traumatized by them. We come into contact with the text and say, oh, I can't go there. Church, not that. Prayer, all these things have the images or the impressions of trauma now built into them for so many. And I think that's what Jesus is saying about how we treat children, that that is representative of that. Do not harm a child in a way that will make it unable to trust, unable to make progress in its journey towards me. Let the children come to me. Do not harm them. Right? This is the kind of thing that Jesus is paying attention to. Whether or not it meets the definition of sin, sinfulness, sinner, I don't know. But this is what's helpful to me as I think of how I interact with you and you with me, all of us together in this journey. This faith community is a group of people journeying together towards Jesus, right? trying to help each other and not hinder along the way. So there you have it. That's my deconstruction, reconstruction of sin, sinfulness, sinner for the morning. Hopefully it gives you a way of understanding how to interact with these terms, how to stand up with confidence in who we are and what we're doing here. I want to take just a moment, as we often do in the mornings, to invite you into uh, just personal reflection. My prayer for you would be either that you would have awareness of how these constructs have been used against you and have a moment for Jesus to disempower that, to flip that script for you. And also that you would just perceive Jesus present with you as a part of this community, helping us all in our journey together. So Jesus, we come to you. We do in this room seek to draw near to you, to the help that you offer, to the goodness that comes from being close to you. I pray that you would just illuminate for us and disempower the way that specifically sin, sin, or sinfulness has been used against us or just to produce control and threat for us. Free us from that and bring us into a life-giving experience of nearness to you. So we give you this moment for that reflection, Jesus. So I'll close just by saying that I am so aware of, I have experienced in so many ways the opposite of this notion of sin, sinfulness, sinner here. I've experienced so much help and benefit by being present and close to people on their journeys as I hear of their discoveries. Specific moments and occurrences and practices, just so much goodness has come to me from being open to that and from having people in this community share what's been helpful to them. So let this be a kind of place where that happens. The band can come forward now as we uh, shift to communion and to musical worship. Uh, we certainly practice an invitational form, a welcoming form of communion here. If you would like to come near to Jesus in this specific way, where we enter into how he has helped us, you're welcome to do that. 
We have stations in the front and back. Uh, the stations in the front are packaged, individually packaged. Those in the back are the bread where you break it off and dip it in the cup. Um, so come as you're ready, and then we'll continue forward in music together. Amen.